0: Welcome to the New York Public Library Podcasts. In this, our first episode, legendary boxing champion Mike Tyson talks about books, life, and his new memoir, Undisputed Truth. Tyson is joined in conversation by Paul Holdengraber, director of Live from the NYPL. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org. (laughs) Doing? <laughs> you know, before I k- got on stage, you said, relax. <laughs> You're fighting against yourself. You were telling me to, to in, in some way, just learn how to move slowly and not make it so hard upon myself. Is that right? Pretty much. <laughs> so I want to begin with an image. Um, if we could put, pull up the photo number one, here is the cover of your book. No words on the cover, just your photo. I'd like you to, to react to what you see there.
1: Oh, wow. A reluctant with surrender. Yeah. What did you say? A reluctant surrender.
0: A reluctance to surrender. Yeah.
1: I gave my whole fight and um, it's time to give it up. It's time to stop and let go and let God. I did all I can do humanly and now it's time for me to let God lead the way.
0: See I, see, I see something so strong and I also see some sadness in that.
1: Um, the sadness is over. There's no more sadness. I have nothing to be sad about. I've done everything I ever wanted to do, everything I ever dreamt of doing, things I never even dreamt of doing. I even made up and I've done them, so
0: um, <laughs> there's nothing to be sad about. You um, in January 2003 you had a tattoo put on your face and you said I hated my face I literally wanted to deface myself it's in the book yeah An amazing comment
1: I don't know I don't think it's that amazing um, the things I say I don't think it's as profound as. What many people may think is profound, I just think is um, my feelings of what I felt at the particular moment, you know. And um, I always had a I always had a very um, complex life, and um, I always had a I never had a good psychological opinion about myself, and that's because of my upbringing and my um, my view on uh, my life and my view of um, yes. Um, my whole barometer as a person, and so I guess, um, I never grasped that um, that love of that uh, that particular identity of myself.
0: What what you've you've told the story, but I'd I'd love our audience to hear a little bit about what this tattoo is.
1: Well, listen, um, I, I was um, I was high. I was smoking some weed and. Um, and drinking and, and I went to this gentleman I said I want a tattoo on my face and I wanted the tattoo I wanted um, what did I want? I wanted hearts or something on my face I want something ridiculous on my face <laughs> and, and, and
0: lots of them
1: yeah lots of them and he wouldn't do it and he said um, no I'm not going to do that and he said I don't do no racist stuff I don't do no disgusting stuff I do only art and he said come back in a week and I'll discuss I'll look for something and then he came back and he said I found some tribal Markings, and then I changed a few things, and I said, "Yeah, I'll try that." And then
0: this is what we came with, and it's a a tribal symbol from Maori. Yeah,
1: from the um, the New Zealand um, indigenous people.
0: What What I find remarkable, Mike, in this um, in this memoir is in this confession, as it were, is that it is very much in the style and in the tradition of some of the most extraordinary confessions, memoirs that have been written. I mean, I place this within the context of Saint Augustine and Montaigne and Rousseau and people who laid their heart bare, who just spoke as it is, who told as much truth as they possibly could and in thinking about that and thinking about the, the fact that in this you have included so many sides of yourself, the, the great with the despicable, the strong with the less strong, your whole, your whole existence in some way. I was thinking of a line of George Orwell where he says, autobiography is only to be trusted when it reveals something disgraceful. A man who gives a good account of himself is probably lying, since any life, when viewed from the inside, is simply a series of defeats. Well, um, now that's pretty profound, but
1: um, <laughs> I, I, I actually, I actually, I, I just actually don't believe somebody's going to read this book and say, "Whoa, I'm envious of this guy's life, and I'm jealous no. of this guy." They're not going to do that if they read this book. I don't think they, they, um, they're gonna get so what, that. So,
0: what do you what do you hope to inspire then? I'm not here to inspire
1: anything. I don't. I hope I wasn't here under those pretenses. I have just
0: uh, no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm. You're not here under no. those pretenses. <laughs> but, but, but I'm wondering what this book. I mean, you can't obviously know wh- how people will react to it, but. What do you think you want to convey in some way? You say you, people don't want to live this life, I understand. But you want to convey some, some kind of sense of what this extremely complex life was about.
1: I never understand the concept. How do I... How do I express this? I've I've never expressed this, but how do I start? I've never, i have never, um, I was never able um, to understand the concept of greatness. I've just never was able to understand that concept of greatness. And um, as time went on and I've gotten older and I've, um, I've met many journeys on people that I met on my journey and people who I've read about on my journey. I read that um, all greatness, the majority of greatness in itself doesn't come with goodness. The two don't coexist with one another. And um, I spent all my life trying to become great because I had such a low self esteem. And, um, and I realized um, late in life, I well, say I'm 47, but late in my life, that um, all great men are not good men. And then so I try to embark on a whole different career and try to become good. But what's the concept of good? Being a, a, um, a floor mat, I never understood the concept of good. As the concept of good is pretty much then I must be a politician because politicians are always striking for goodness and always trying to win votes from people. And the only reason that we win votes because they believe that we're good. So how do we live in those two dimensions at once. You want that greatness for self-gratification, but you want goodness from a human perspective. And I, and I, I really have no idea, no clue, how do, I, um, how do I juggle both of them and be in harmony? And then in all actuality, they don't exist. You have to pick a side.
0: What are the qualities you admire in people?
1: Um... Yes, um, desire. Um, I'm, I, I respect a person who's willing to die for what he truly wants. Even if it's love, even if it's a, a woman. Whatever is it is that he truly believes in and that he believes that he, he um, it transcends him to that, um, that level to um, demand. Um, for love, for instance, for instance um, I look at love as a, a command to just rise to your greatest potential. You know, and um, that's how people should feel. Their objective should be to rise to their best potential in life. If it's to lose 30 pounds, if it's to pass a test, it should be um, to win a fight, to be um, to be admired by people all over the world. It should allow you to raise, rise to your greatest potential, that you look at yourself in the most grandest fashion.
0: I'd like to take um, a moment here to, to say that this book is, is extraordinarily written and I'd like to recognize uh, your, your co-author on this book, Larry Ratzel Sloman. I don't know where he is. Larry, can you stand? Now, um, I'd like us to go on a journey... On the journey of your, of your fight. It's a journey of the book. It's a journey of where you started out in, in New York, in Brooklyn, in Brownsville, okay. and where you ended tonight at the New York Public Library. We I'd don't like have enough time for that. No, no, wait, wait enough. <laughs> we don't have enough. No, time. no, no. We won't go through all of it, I promise you, but we'll go through some highlights. Um, I'd like to start with uh, the photo number five, if I could. And I'd like to start with your, your mother, who features importantly in your book. And um, for you to tell us a little bit about your upbringing in, in Brownsville, and your, yes, your relation with your mother, and what a day looked like for you when you were five and six and seven. Well, um,
1: wow, this is interesting. Um, my mother's um, she's, a, she's a southern woman from the Virginia area. And um, this is what I found out later. And um, I only can remember for a small period of, for a small, real small increment of my life that I lived in Bedford-Stuyvesant in, in the uh, early, middle 70s. Um, eventually, we had to move. Um, we were evicted. Um, we had to leave the house. All of our furniture was really politely decorated um, the concrete outside so we had to, me and my brother I guess we had to sit um, on the furniture to wait till my mother can get a place for us to stay and it was just after that it was pretty much hard times, welfare when we moved to Brownville which was a much more aggressive neighborhood and um, it just wasn't good it was just um, crime infested, drug infested neighborhood and it was very aggressive. And my mother had, um, knew a lot of men. Her and her friends knew a lot of men. It wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be normal for me to um, come from one of my friend's house, to come from outside a, a man and a woman is in my mo- one of my mother's room. Or my mother's in a room with a man and a woman. And we can't go in the room if we have to stay outside in um, the kitchen, perhaps, or the living room. And we can't go in the back of the room until they're finished. And that's just how our life's been. And um, as time went on, I've learned to, um, to while people were in the back that I would, um, and they fell asleep, I would go in their pockets and take their money. <laughs> and that's just how it's been. That's just what it was all about. Um, I learned how to steal at a younger, young, young age. Very young age? Yeah, very young. I learned how to steal. I learned how to. Um, when my mother's friends were in her house, they were drinking. I learned to go in their house from a fire escape and rob their house while they were downstairs drinking with my mother. And that's just, um, that's just what I learned to do in my life.
0: And you, you ended up um, going to school, but stopping school at a very, very early age.
1: Well, well, people used to pick on me in school. They, they bullied
0: you. I mean, you had yeah, the, such an Did They bullied
1: me, yeah, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, they used to bully me in school. And so I never went back to school. So when my mother used to send me to school, I would just be hanging around the school, walking around the school. And if the, um, you know, normally we have security guards, the truant officer, that see me, I would take off and run or hide in a building, abandon the building. But um, normally, um, my mother knew I wasn't going to school. Then I met some guys one day and they, they pursued to the ripping me off, and they realized I didn't have no money. Um, and then, um, but on lunchtime, I used to go in school and eat lunch, and then leave school again. <laughs> so, um, especially when they had been, um, meatballs and spaghetti. So, um, one time, these guys um, they wanted to rip me off, and I didn't have no money. So they asked me, "Do you want to fly birds with me?" So I said, "What do you mean? Do you want to fly with us?" And then I realized that they. Um, they took me to this abandoned building, but they wanted me to get my milk, the milk, climb the fence and throw milk crates over to them. And I didn't understand why they wanted the milk crates, but I did it anyway because I was kind of scared. But And then they had, took me to this abandoned building. I didn't know what they were going to do to me in that building, you know. So when I went up there, I saw on the roof they had pigeons. And then after that, I never went to the, um, I never went to school again. Once I found that I had a pigeon coop, and I could beat these guys flunkies and go to the store for them and... If the birds were horrible, they were in horrible condition. So the birds would fly for a little while and then they'd land on another roof and then make me get up and go on that roof shortly, get the birds off the roof. So I would go to all these roofs that the, the lady birds flew on and scare the birds off, hoping that they would go back to the roof where the guys were. And I thought that was pretty cool because I felt wanted because at least somebody wanted me to do something for them. So the next day, instead of going back around, walking around school, I went to the pigeon coop and the guy saw me and he said, Excuse me, young man. They said, What the fuck are you doing? And they started throwing bricks at me and while they were on the roof. And I said, Hey, hey, I just came around to see your guys need me to do anything for y'all today, like help with the birds or go to the store for you. That's all. But they had thought that I was coming back around to steal their birds. And I had no concept of stealing birds back then. So I guess. Um,
0: <laughs> the concept developed later. Yeah. yeah. I
1: just wanted some place to—I just wanted some place to hang out instead of walking around the streets all day. And uh, some weird guy would be asking me to get in the car and suck their dick or let them suck my dick or something. When I was outside, just waiting for school to come out or waiting for the lunch um, to appear. So I would be on the roof with these guys who I didn't know, who might have killed me also, right? So um, this year, go and then they throw down some. Go to the store and get some cigarettes and get a knee-high soda. I have to throw them bricks at me, you know, and so I go upstairs and um, so the guys go like this school is over and stuff but they tell me um, we're going to the center tonight we're going to go to the, um, the after school center this is where um, I don't know the poverty struck people people that live in the projects they have a center there a youth center and they go there and they're playing music they got a jam in the center so we're going to go to the center and so um, oh man I don't believe I'm saying it. so I said okay I want to go too can I go? And I said, okay, says, yeah, sure, you can come. But um, I'm a young kid, I know no concept of, uh, you had to wash. Um, yeah, and so when I went to the center, I said, st- oh, fuck. I still had the bird shit on me from the, I um. thought <laughs> so I still have the bird shit and all the stuff, the tar and stuff from being in a pigeon coop helping them build a the coop. So, you know, we have tar paper, so we have to put tar to put the tar paper in the coop. And we're doing our own little um, home design network on there, right? And so um, I have tar on me, and I have bird um, done on me. And so when we go back, I never went home and washed. I just had the same clothes I had. And when I went there, the kids that was on the roof that brought me to the roof, they all had new clothes on. And they all laughed at me. And everybody started laughing at me. And I was scared and embarrassed. I started laughing, too. And, um... One of the guys that was on the roof, he had said, "Um, what the fuck, you dirty little motherfucker? What you come around here looking like that? Don't you ever wash? And he said, you better meet me at the roof. Meet me tomorrow, motherfucker. Meet me at the roof with the birds where you met me today. Even though that guy wasn't his pigeons, but he was there. He was looking for one of those other guy's brothers. He was older. He said, meet me at the roof. You hear me, Shorty? Meet me at the fucking pigeon. Where you were today? And I'm a a smuck. I'm a girl smuck. So, um... I went with, I met him early in the morning, just like when you're going to school. So I met him at the pigeon coop, and from, oh man! And from then on, me and him started robbing houses. He, uh, he taught me. Um, he taught me how to rob houses. He t- he taught you how to pick locks. Well, that too. But he, he taught me how to rob the houses, and um, because I was younger than him, so he would tell me to knock on the ring the door, but knock on the door, and if someone comes over. Say, you're looking for this guy. Here, give me a Jewish name or something. He'll give me some name. He just knew what to say, the right stuff in what neighborhoods. And um, I didn't know. I didn't, and then they found out nobody was there, he would pick the locks. He would have to keep pick the locks. And we would go in there. We would, um, we would find money, guns, jewelry. It was just wow. It was just such a rush being into my house, and you see that, that luxury there, and it's yours. And... Um, he didn't give me much money, but he bought me a lot of nice-looking clothes. And he said, you, know, you go back to the center looking like this. Don't forget, you hear me, motherfucker? You go be looking like this. And then I went to that center, and then was a, uh, it was a whole different—it uh, was
0: totally different. You were appreciated differently. Yes,
1: yes, yes. Everybody wanted to be my friend. Everybody, had, at the time, I was young, but at the time we had—I don't think I can't even pronounce Digital. It's a digital, right? The digital watch. Remember that stuff? We had digital watches and long jean watches. And I was just a young little kid. I must have been 10. I might not have even been 10, but uh, I remember I had one watch. I had a long jean watch. i never forget it was a gold watch with one diamond. And I had the digital watch. But I liked the digital watch because I was a kid and I liked to see the numbers light up. Kick you, kick you, kick you. But I couldn't even tell time back then, but I had the watches and stuff. <laughs> it still makes you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was just, um, in my neighborhood, that's what was about but it depends on how you look. And I always, um, and they used to call me Dirty Mike, Dirty Ike, and it wasn't because I had bad clothes. I always had the best clothes, but I always had was on the pigeon coop, and I always got them dirty and tall, and I would never change my clothes and wear, I would never do that. I would never change my clothes to put on some raggedy clothes and be seen in raggedy clothes, because I'd been traumatized from that experience when I went to the... the, the the daycare center, after school center. So I would always just wear my nice clothes in the pigeon coop, and they would always get dirty and I would just go home and change, change some new nice clothes, you know. To uh, this day, I'm the same way. I always make sure they have nice clothes on no matter wherever I go. If I'm playing with pigeons, if I'm playing soccer, if I'm picking out the garbage. And it's just, um, I mean, it's just always been a scar on me since them guys just humiliated me that day.
0: I want to um, go from from Brown Brownsville, to perhaps what was one of the most important experiences for you, um, meeting Castamato and what, what that meant. <coughs> I'd like us to see uh, photo number two if we could. You, you, you say about him there wasn't a happy muscle in his face.
1: No, um, this is an awesome man. Listen, this guy only talked... He reminds me of Edmund Dante from the Count of Monte Cristo. This guy was always, till the day he died, he's always planning his revenge and his comeback for the people that put him in self-exile from boxing. Um, these, these guys are dead, and he's still planning revenge on these guys. And he's plan. listen, he's, plan- um, he's planning revenge on the guys... Who worked for this guy, but didn't even, didn't like the guy anyway either? But he wants to he wants to go after them too, just because they worked for him, you know. But they they didn't they, you know it was just crazy. They didn't have nothing against Cuss, but had hated those people just because they knew him in any kind of capacity, and he always planned for his um his great comeback in boxing.
0: Channel for me, Cuss. Tell me. I mean, you write in the book the Among my very favorite passages are those passages where you channel Kass. you tell us what he said to you and the incredible impact he had on you. In in some way, he's not only a mentor, but he's also nearly a medium.
1: I guess um, I never, um, in my whole, listen, this is is really interesting.
0: Number three. What is he saying to you?
1: He's telling me, um, what this guy always told me, he says, I'm allowing my mind uh, to get the better of me. Your mind, you don't have your mind on your work. You're not being disciplined. He, he, re- he really knew that. He always believed that his mind could heal anything. He believed if he had cancer, his mind could heal cancer. He was a strong believer that um, your body, um, only purpose was to carry your brain. And, you know, um, he was just um, amazing, man.
0: Tell me more. Tell me more because he, he, he had such a huge impact on you. He told you things early on that nobody had told you before, and he believed in you in a way that nobody had paid attention to you before. He, you went up to his gym, he heard you walking up, he knew, he saw in you something quite immediately.
1: Wow, well, I can't say that because I might get um, emotional. And I
0: don't He taught you some techniques, which I'd like you to, to demonstrate slightly. No, the peekaboo. I mean, I was trying to understand what that all meant.
1: Well, the peekaboo was uh, really—I um,
0: don't know if he's no, showing it was, it was you that. No, it was really there.
1: a cruel style of boxing. It basically kept both your hands up, and then basically you twist at your waist and you move, and you, ca- you come forward, make the guy miss, counter punch. and it was pretty much. Um, it's, it's really pretty much, he really discovered it from karate. He watched karate people do it. And just move, get to one position and, and punch with everything you got with bad and mean and ferocious intention. And most of his fighting was mostly psychologically. He believed um, physical, the physical actuality of boxing was only 10% when the mind was 90%. And he always believed in improving yourself and strengthening your mind. And you really couldn't do that just by talk. You had to do it by action and practice.
0: But he, he, one of the things he did with you was talk to you. Every day. Every day. day for would, hours. Hours, you would take yes, these walks. Day. I mean, you describe every them. Day. Every day you would walk and walk and walk and talk, and he would just repeat well, would tell, and repeat. He, would, he would really tell me what,
1: um, what I should be doing. I should be always think about improving myself. I mean, have me say day by day, and everywhere would get better, better and better. And um, he really... um. I never had... Um, this is really interesting. When um, I met Cuss, I, even though I was a street kid and I would come with like, a tough kid, I never had an ego. I was never really jealous of anybody. I never really thought most of myself, much of myself. But when I met Cuss and I started talking to Cuss, um, he made me believe that I was a god. You know, he made me believe that, um, for instance, Cuss would say this. Now, to Cuss, Cuss would say, now, you, see, you hear this? Because Cuss had really... Um, he had this really... Um, Megalomania, ego. He said, you Let me tell you something. You, you, all the prophets, all the gods you ever know about, if they had a son, their son's going to beat my fighter. You know why? Because he's my fighter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but he also taught you how to, he built that ego, but he also told, taught you how to be mean. He believed, you know, there's a quotation here in the, line, in the book where you say, Cuss wanted the meanest fighter that God ever created. Someone who scared the life out of people before they even entered the ring. He trained me to be totally ferocious in the ring and out. Well, yeah, and that's what I was. <laughs> that's what I was. Yeah. That's why I'm here. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Yeah, that's why you... I mean, he taught you how to to completely be an animal in the ring. I mean, and build you in that way.
1: Not but an animal, but a sophisticated animal, a smart animal, the lion and the fox. You know what I mean? I could also I could beat the vicious guys, and I got smart the slicksters. So I was um I was pretty much didacto in that that apartment pretty much. Um, but the um what really was um. The turning point is that there was nobody that could reach the core like Cus could. No one could um, inspire me.
0: Um, I don't know. Um you know, you, you mentioned that in, in some way he, he was even more than a father to you, a father you didn't have, but he served in some way as... No, the, was, the back uh, I mean I think at some point you say he was my backbone
1: he was more than that he wouldn't let no one say anything negative about me no um, matter any fight if someone said something negative about me he was an old man he would attack them literally yeah physically <laughs> he wouldn't let nobody allow any negativity to even seep through my anything um, mm-hmm. seep through my psychic you know everything was that um I'm invincible, I'm a savage, I'm ferocious, I'm the smartest savage. I don't even think that way anymore.
0: He also had you read a lot.
1: Yeah. He always had me read mostly um, books about war, Claude Van Clotswit, the... Um, this guy, he was a pretty interesting guy he, had, he, had, he read Nietzsche And this is why Cuss read all those books Cuss was pretty much of an intellect But he was an intellectual and philosopher about war And he thought fighting was a form of war You know, and he thought fighting was um, Cuss really thought he, he was like born 2,000 years too early He should have been a Roman gladiator or something <laughs> Because he believed um, He believed um, fighting was um, your, your opponent surrender his total destruction and he didn't think of it as um, even though he said it was savage and ferociously, you had to do it in such a relaxed and calm state you know, without any emotions and I'm totally emotional guy all over the place, so that thing just didn't work out, but um, <laughs> that's what he was all about you know what I mean, a really scientific way of destroying people he, he, um, he wow, he enjoyed hurting the opponent he wants them to never have a chance to believe they can beat you
0: yeah, but you know hurting the opponent and this is a very important um, uh, part of what you, you describe in the book is an undisputed truth you, you describe the fact also that hurting the opponent was co-substantial to boxing and may now be leaving it in some way
1: well no because um. In doing that, and there's a quote in Machiavelli, the prince, and when they say, after you, defeat, after you defeat the king and you cut off his head, you be audacious, and you say what you're going to do to the next ruler and the next, con- and the next um, prince that you're going to conquer, and that allows them to be intimidated. It, um, it speaks value.
0: You know... Um one of the people I've, I've interviewed here a few times who I know fairly well is Werner Herzog, the German filmmaker. Oh, that's my buddy. Uh, well, he loves you. Um, um, and, and Werner said, you know, you ask him a question from me. You ask him, why is he interested in all these Frankish uh, uh, kings? Why is he... Intre-? He actually asked me to ask the audience, who in the audience knows ab- about Pepin the Short? Well you know about Pepin the Short. Oh, absolutely. And, and he said, you know, Mike Tyson will know who Pepin the Short is. He will know about Clovis. He will know about the Frankish kings. Why does this matter to you? And he asked me to ask you this in this way. Where does that curiosity for Pepin the Short come from?
1: I don't know. It um, all comes from my insecurity of being poor and not having nothing, being insecure, and being... Um, um, yeah, that's what it is. Um, obscure. I never wanted to be obscure. I was born in obscurity, and I never wanted to deal with that again. I never wanted to be that. And they came from obscurity. Um, Clovis came from obscurity. From only one perspective, he was a king at 15 years old when his father died, but... um. They were just, um, they were small kings. His father, his father was what? Children, and his father father was Merovich, the founder of the Merovichian dynasty. But they were really nothing because the Tiller the Hun was t- terrorizing the whole, the whole territory. He was terrorizing the Romans, he was terrorizing the Visigoths. he was terrorizing the Franks, um, the Vandals. Everybody was in um, mortal fear of him. And then um, Atheist, um, a statesman from Rome, decided that he's going to get all the German tribes together and we're going to vanquish Attila the Hun, and um, then he did. In, and in the process of doing it, um, the Roman Kingdom pretty much fell to pieces. And after Attila the Hun died, then the Franks and the German tribe, you know, they reigned rabid on the whole um, Mediterranean world. And that's why most of the guys, um, most of the, most of the saints are German. You know, when we read about the Germans, um, and it was Pepin the short, I believe, not, I believe Pepin from Austria, the first Pepin, and then it was St. Arnold. He became St. Arnold, but his real name is Anouf. He's given him Pepin, his daughter, and then Pepin married his daughter, then sent her to a monastery, and then from then on, they took, they, um, they took over. I think they vanquished the last king of the Merovingians. I believe it was Clovis III. And then after that, the Carligans took over. And from Pepin, Pepin, um, Pepin had this, um, what did Pepin have? He had a, a son that was called Martell. Martell. Yeah, and Carl Martel's he was an um, illegitimate son. And, all the, and then after Pepin died, Pepin I first died, his wife took Martel and put him in prison. But Martel was the strongest of out of all of his um, half-brothers, so some of the, the guards in prison, they let him out. He built an army and then he conquered all his brothers and then he became Karl Martel Karl Martel meaning the hammer in, in German and then he, um, he became a warrior, but they're really all farmers and then the Arabs came into power and the Arabs um, pretty much they pretty much conquered the whole part of Europe, definitely France and then they came to a place I believe it was Tours in 735 and then Carl Martel, he, he built up a tribe, and he made an army, and then he conquered all the Arabs, and he saved Christendom because without that victim, we would all be speaking, um, we'd all be speaking um, Arab right now. All, all this world, will be, all, most of the world, especially the south, this part of the world, and all of Europe, have been
0: Mike, Arab rule. How, how do you know all this shit? I mean, how did you... <laughs> this, is just, um, this is just what I do, I'm... Um,
1: I love war. I love the act of war. I love the um, I love the players in war. I
0: love the philosophy of war. So, reading all of these kinds of books, and we just before coming down here today, I took you to the rare book room to see a first edition of Machiavelli. I've really, I must say, I've really taken my guests to see the the special collections and seen them as deeply. Curious as you were seeing the, this work, it really means something to you to see these books. You said to me when we left the, the, the special collections, you, you said, "You know, the most stolen items in the world are books."
1: Yeah, they're most um, they are most um, priceless possessions because if you think about it, you know, a room without a book is like a body without a soul. You know, we have to... Um, it's the only way that we can connect the future with the past. Without that, there's no way that we can come... With no way we can know about the future or know about the fu- or know about particularly um, the past or the present, you know, because when you think about um, history, the value of history is not necessarily scientific but moral. By liberating our minds and, you know, deepening our sympathies and fortifying our will, we... Um, we, we can control um pretty much history allows us to control not society but ourselves, which is a much more important thing to do. you know what i mean and it, and it would allow us to pretty much um meet the future more so than foretell it and for that reason alone that we always have to um in order in the, the, the order to predict the, the future, we have to always look at through the past because very rarely does... Um, time does not repeat itself and it always will repeat itself I've heard a quote before in the book that um, um, we, were, we would be fools to think historically that um, the past is us in funny clothes but the past is us in funny clothes and that's truly what it is that's for somebody that really said a really profound statement but he misquote what he was saying he must have been saying it backwards because that's really what the past was,
0: it's just us in funny clothes, clothes in
1: different times that's really what it is
0: but you were saying, you know, th- uh, how important it is to, to learn history because in some way it dictates our, it can help our behavior. It didn't help yours.
1: No, um, no, no. I- I've lived, um, hey, I lived a uh, uh, life just like um, a lot of people. It may have been a long time. Ben Hurd had a life like, remember we saw that movie Ben Hurd? You know right. what I mean? He was a wealthy man. He became a slave. He became a great Conqueror, as far as athletics were concerned, he became a star. He became a very—he became the best celebrity. And um, I believe wherever it was, Actavia, um, whatever city they took him to, he rescued that. Um, he rescued the, the, the general of that ship. And um, after all that, he still went. He still um, couldn't save his family. They put him with the leopards. And his main objective—he went back and he got his family from the leopards. His sister and his mother. And then again, he came back. He he may not have been um, famous again, um, but he got his family, and that was his success. We look at success, me, myself, you know, it's it's different levels of success. Some people's um, success is um, not using drugs, not drinking anymore. Some people's success is making a million dollars. Some other people's success is making a billion dollars. Some people's success is not going to prison no more. And we have totally different levels of success.
0: I'd like to just stay one more moment on, on your early early years and look at um, if we could look at the photo number four. When was this taken? I don't
1: know, 1983, 82. How old were you? 16, perhaps.
0: Incredible
1: you see I have that part in my hair I remember looking at all the old fighters they always had wavy hair and they had the part in their hair like in 1910 and in the 20s I wanted to emulate them it was the only way I, I couldn't make it as Mike Tyson tough guy from Brownsville, Brooklyn I had to look at myself totally greater than I actually was or whatever I dreamt it was it was, totally f- it was always very fictional who I believed I was
0: and this was after two years or two years or three years with CUS probably three years
1: When I was 12 years old, I looked just like I look now. <laughs> I haven't grown any, really. I look the same as I look now when I was 12 years old. This is how I look. Everybody thought I was going to be tall, but I stayed the same size.
0: <laughs> it's just such an incredible picture.
1: Are you smiling, do you think? No, I'm gritting. I'm looking. I'm trying to growl. I'm growling.
0: Hmm. What I'd like us to do now is to have a little master class with you. Uh oh. We're going to we're going to sh- watch a few fights, okay? And we're going to watch them. I'd like to explain. We're going to watch them without sound. And I don't know exactly what I'm seeing. But I'd like you to tell us what what okay. you see. Oh, and so the f- okay. uh, and the uh, no. um, Are you are you covering up? No, no, no. I'm, I, this is not going to be.
1: Hey, I don't even know. Uh, I don't even watch this stuff. I try so deeply to avoid my past and boxing. Well, you know now what? I it's it's oh, actually God. we're going to
0: watch other boxes. Great. All right. Great. We'll, we'll, We'll watch maybe one with you, because okay. I think it would be a missed opportunity to have you here and not watch one with okay. you. But we're going to begin, because also, you know, the... What I was mentioning to you about Herzog and all those the, those that the history you loved, you loved the history of boxing. You loved meeting yes. Max Schmeling. Yes. You lo- I mean, you you speak about in the, that page where you speak about meeting Max Schmeling up in, in Harlem, and I mean it just no. I met Max Schmeling in Las Vegas. In Las Vegas. Yes. Who am I confusing with? Was it you, Joe Lewis? You're confusing
1: me with the story that Joe, uh, Max Schmeling, when he heard Joe Lewis was broken doing bad, he left from Germany No, and, came and to you li- you
0: absolutely right, in in Max. Schmeling yeah. went up to Harlem, but you, you loved meeting all these old fighters. But you, but you also loved reading the history of boxing. Yes. Because I
1: wanted—I wanted—I um, just wanted to be the best in what I did, so I wanted to know the history of it. I wanted to know the origin of it.
0: Do you feel that boxers
1: are doing that now today? Well, no, no, they can't. No. I, I, well, at least I don't know. I don't want to be um, ignorant and say I'm the only guy that ever did this, and it's only about me. I'd like to believe that, though. But um, <laughs> I'm not going to be, I don't <laughs> want to say that.
0: Um. All right. Um, let's, let's look at this um, Sugar Ray Leonard, Robert Duran fight. It's round 12, June okay. 20th, 1918.
1: Yeah, this is the moment I know I wanted to be a fighter. Watching two masters fight. Whoa, 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 whoa.
0: What's happening?
1: There's two fighters waiting for, just setting up, waiting for a moment right now. Any moment he's ready. He's ready to land a punch, but his head moves. As soon as he thinks he's dead, then he moves his head. But then watch this guy. He's getting ready to punch it with a dazzling combination. But he can't hit. Both guys are fighting. It's almost like it's... Um, the fighting stage is choreographed. They can't hit each other. But they're both punching. Very tied to the 12th round. And I didn't really know if I was going to be a fighter or not. But after watching these guys, I know. You know, the sword, um, they were fighting They fought 15 rounds and they... And it was a war, but none of them had a mark on their face. But it was a hard fight, but nobody had a mark on their face. they master technicians, you know.
0: And, craft he's, well. and he's your favorite fighter. Duran, yes. Yes. You actually say in, in, in the book that most people assume that it's Ali, but it's really Duran for yeah. you. Why? Um, wow. He was
1: a street fighter like me.
0: You identified yeah, with him. Yeah, he
1: was crude and mean. Um, I never looked at Ali. Um, I respected Ali, and I worshiped Ali. But he was, um, he was very tall and very handsome. I was very short and not so handsome, and I wasn't good looking. And he was very, um, I don't know, I mean, articulate, and I spoke with a lisp. And um, I, didn't re- um, I didn't relate to two besides we were black. Ali was a middle-class kid here. The mother and father that both worked. My mother and father was in... Um, the sex industry so I you know and Roberta the grandmother mother was pretty much you know me out there as well and so I related to that and um, I didn't have to change I didn't have to um, change my diction I didn't have to learn how to talk um, polite I didn't have to be nice I didn't have to I didn't have, um, have to have a proper linguistic skill and so if he could be accepted and be worshipped that way, I thought I would be able to as well.
0: And he made he made it click for you. It was oh, him. No, he was just it, it yeah. Was he, was him the, who made he was just a master
1: fighter. He after that fight, he he, he pushed Lenny, Went to some other guy and he told him to suck his balls. He is um, <laughs> and I just drove me nuts. I said, "Yeah, that's my man." <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. You But then you have to understand, I'm I'm only 14 years old when these guys fought. This is 1980, so I'm 14 years old, and I just thought that was the most remarkable person in the world. (laughs) You know, a lot of people, when they hear me talk about these um, events in my life, um, they can't imagine I'm 12 years old. They always think I'm older.
0: No, this is what is amazing. It's the first 150 pages of the book. You realize that when you've arrived there, you are only 15 or 16 years old, and you have lived... A hundred lives, it feels like. The intensity and extremity of the life is so extraordinary. When feels it feels that it's nearly incredible that you're so young.
1: Hey, um, I don't know why. I, just, um, I, had, um, I was born with great perception. If it came from my street life, from being locked up for stealing and um, faith in... Unbelievable author, the young kid, I had great perception. And once I watched um, these guys fight, I just knew it was a matter of time, but I knew I was, uh, my time would soon come. And you also had a perception that your life would not last. No, but I knew, um, I, knew I, would, um, I would obtain my goal before it existed. I knew that. I knew I would be champ of the world before I died. I knew I wasn't going to die before I became champ. You know, um, dying is just as glorious as living when you really think about it, because you couldn't have a life if you didn't have death, and you couldn't have death without life. So, how could death be less glorious than life? They're both inter- intertwined with one another.
0: We'll see another, uh, another clip, clip number three. It's, uh, it's um, uh, clip number two, sorry. It's uh, the fight of Ali versus Sony Liston, it's uh, round number three. This is a great fight because this fight Ali
1: was—he um, was a young man—and believe it or not, before Ali came on the scene, this guy was a monster. This guy was—this um, guy was a oh man—he was a juggernaut. Um, guys, um, he didn't even have to hit the guy; all the they had to do was to walk in a circle around him till they dropped dead of a heart attack. And um, <laughs> he was just a mean. Listen, this is a bad man. This man right here is really a bad man inside the ring and out. This guy terrorizes cities by himself. Um, he, he goes, man. Police start. Police try to um, question him. He knocks them out. He breaks their jaw. Um, he puts them in comas. This is the man. You, this, this is a guy that you only you read about in, in fables and stuff. This is a real bad man right here. Inside the ring and out. And because Muhammad Ali, um, you know, you have to only talk to guys that within this era and know about fighting. Ali, is so, he has superseded this guy so bad that people forgot about him. But before Ali came on the scene, this guy did, um, man, he made boxing look so easy. He made it look very easy. This is the Mike Tyson of the, of the 60s, and late 50s, right here. You can never, you know, Ali, the reason why Ali beat these guys, because Ali, believe it or not, Yeah, I was wondering, what did he have that, Ali th- had the will to win like nobody that ever lived in boxing. He had the what? The will to win. He's um. We look at Ali and when, when you think about it, right? You see this guy Ali. Ali is um. In all actuality, um, he really passes more as a male model than he is a fighter. <laughs> when you think about it, um, no, really, really. If you just look at Ali, he's more of a male model than he is a fighter. But he's a ferocious animal. He's almost like um. He's like a ferocious saber-toothed tiger with a, a very pretty face. And um, that's what we don't see. That's what we just don't see that in these kind of people. And that's what he was. He was just a, man, he had, his pain threshold was just out of this world. And he was just um, the quintessential um, prototype of the great fighter. And he did everything wrong. You know, he pulled back. He never punched to the body. You know, and he just um, he what wore do people mean, down.
0: Explain this to me. What Ali never, never threw a body was,
1: punch in his career. Okay, so you you know what I mean? I don't know, never, know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> he never hit anybody in the Oof. chat in their career. I I you know I, I, mean? I, <laughs>
0: no, I was. Never. I was <laughs> <laughs> Ali never I was hit, exactly home. Oh, oh, okay, I'm okay, sorry. okay. But listen, no, Ali um, no.
1: Ali never punched to the body, hit anybody in the and his whole career to the body, and Ali just um, he just believed Ali believed that he was truly a God and nobody on this planet could beat him. And how dare you even think that you could beat me?
0: You know, so he, he came he on stage that, with that oh, uh, everything the that he
1: Everything that he believed, he projected to his opponent. You know, um, now, look when you really look at how does Ali beat George Foreman? Huh, how does Ali beat Sonny Liston? How do you beat these guys? How did he even beat Joe Frazier, fighting the way he fights? He beat them because he refused to lose. You know what I mean? He was just a remarkable human being.
0: And, and this is, uh, I mean, in, in some way... You and Ali have something in common there through Castamato, because Castamato also taught you this will to destroy and to win at any cost. Well,
1: Ali wasn't a destroyer. Ali was um, more of a manipulator. He made you believe that you couldn't beat him. How did he, he do that? Because he, he told you you couldn't. LAUGHTER <laughs> He made you believe. You know, you look at this guy. You see you know, these big monsters. They landing these heavy punches on this guy, and he's fighting them back. And Ali, we well, hit you. You hit Ali with a. You know, you hit him with the, um, this building. And he said, "That's all you have." <laughs> Your sister hits harder than that. And he just he talks really bad about you in the clinches, Ali. Ali, really, things that I, I'm not really permitted to say in the audience. He would really talk bad about you in the clinches. And, um, it's okay, you can. No, I, oh. I prefer not to. <laughs> but, um, he's just a remarkable man, and I don't think we'll ever see a man like him again. And um, he's just, man, it's incredible.
0: But, incredible. But when you, when you, when you say he, he spoke, he, he did it while he was fighting.
1: Oh, absolutely. But it was more than what he took. It's what he believed and what he um, accomplished and how he beat the guy. He, he, he beat you with his punches, but um, he's just... Um, we're never going to see a man like him again. Not in the ring. No, never.
0: Well, um, with that in mind, I, I think we should uh, maybe see one more Ali, Ali fight. All okay, right, let's it, do it. Yeah, let's... Um, clip number three, Muhammad Ali versus Joe wow.
1: Frazier. This is Ali fighting Joe Frazier in 1971. Ali's been... Um, Round eleven. He's in round eleven. He's been exiled for three and a half years. Joe Lou's, Joe Frazier's been very active. Ali has only for three fights in three and a half years. And he's fighting um one of the roughest fighters in the history of boxing. A really perpetual motion. Don't give you a moment's rest. He's constantly on you, throwing hard hydrogen bombs. Look at him, he never stops. He never stops. No, hey, don't get me wrong. Joe Frazier went to the hospital because Ali put a real you know, old fashioned ass whooping on him. But listen, he never stopped. He never stopped. He has never stopped. He was perpetual motion. Both of these guys, him, George Foreman, Joe Frazier, and Muhammad Ali, their birthday is only a few days apart. They're all Capricorn, you know, the biggest ego in the, in the astrological signs. <laughs> Capricorns never admit to their wrongs and stuff, they're always right.
0: What's he, happening here? I mean, he's... He's talking. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's talking. <laughs> he's
1: talking. But as, as I was saying earlier, what make great fights, right? Joe Frazier, um... Joe Frazier despises him. Joe Frazier hates his guts. You know what I mean? And that's what brings out the best of Joe Frazier because he really despises Ali. He thinks Ali is pretty because he is. He thinks Ali thinks he's better than him because he does. <laughs> and, um... Look at Ali, fighting back. But Joe Frazier, he's taking, he's taking seven punches to land one. But when he landed, he sure lands it. it. Look at him. Oh, he's still hurt. This man is out on his foot. But look, whoa, whoa, down he almost went. Look at him, his jaw is fractured. Look inside, look at, his, look at Ali's right jaw. It's swollen like a golf ball's in there. But he's still fighting. Look at him. He's a little guy, but... Yeah, I hear you. He, he's a little guy, but he's an animal. Oh, man. He never stops coming. He never comes. He makes all your causes, everything you believe, I'm fighting for my mother, I'm fighting for my, my brother who's dying for cancer. He makes all your causes a fucking lie. Oh... <laughs> 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 uh. uh. this is one of the greatest fights in the history of the world this is the first time two men have made 2.5 million dollars for a fight both of these guys, this is 1971 and that was a lot of money back then you know, I was I, was, I, was, I didn't know anything about money back then but I'm sure Paulie Herman's around here two and a half million dollars, that was a lot of money back in 71 right Paulie? yeah, okay that was a lot it of money it feels like
0: a lot of money to me now
1: yes. yeah. yeah, well listen um, I wouldn't turn it down now
0: either don't you? Yeah, me wrong. Yeah. um Um, I can say we we have that in common. Um, Now, let's look at a a couple more clips. Uh, Clip number four, this is a fight you're in. Oh, Uh, no. No, I'm sorry. We have to. Okay. Reggie Gross, June 13th. Yeah, Reggie Reggie
1: Gross. Reggie Gross is a real tough guy. He's a spoiler. He beat a lot of undefeated fighters. And um, everybody thought he was going to go at least 10 rounds with me. And give me a tough fight. But um, this is the Madison Square Garden. Do you recognize Cuss's hand there? Um, I used to remember what Cuss taught me. I don't see nobody's hand. I used to know um, I have to move my hand. I have to be very elusive. And I know um, I want to hurt him desperately. I want to dismantle him. Um, When this is over, everybody's going to know my name. And the people that fight after him, oh they're going to fear me. My whole objective was cuss, um, cuss was an interesting guy. He had the concept of fear down to a science. And um, that's pretty much um, how my reign consists of, of just fear. And, and on occasion, some guys like him, who's a tough guy, they would try to fight back. And that would just um, allow me to excel at an extremely high level. Hey, check this out. Um, Watch watch his explosion and punches. Watch him. He's going to do a barrage of punches right now. He's going to throw a real beautiful combination at me, around 10 punches. Check it out. Watch this. Watch my head.
0: Does it feel that way? Uh, uh, uh. Just I mean, I mean, it felt like a, a a cosmic release here. I mean, everybody just. No. I mean, um, what does it? You know, I, I I feel like asking you, what does it feel like to both be the recipient and to give these punches? I mean, is there any? I mean, it's an experience which I don't think I'll ever yeah, have. No, um, but yeah. you know, well, you know, that's funny you say that because most people um. What I do
1: for a living, they avoid their whole entire life. Yeah. I don't know, I just... Um, I wanted to make us proud. That was my whole existence for fighting. I wanted to make them proud. I never knew what it was like to have a fighter. Um, no, excuse me, a father. So now I understand what some kids must feel when they can't make their fathers happy. Because he, um, he would do anything for me. I was just... Um, and, and it's, um, I don't think that way now. I was just... Um, I was just disappointed that I didn't kill them back then. (laughs) That was just my main objective because I wanted to succeed so bad and I I felt the fear of not succeeding was was worse than dying. So I just wanted to make sure they never got up.
0: I mean, and Cuss had it down to a science. I mean, a science of, of hurting, of maiming. Well, he
1: allowed them to hurt themselves. For instance, I was a kid um, in the amateur tournament, and somebody had came over to me and said, that was a one I knocked out a guy quick, and they said, wow, that was a wonderful fight. I must have been 14. And um, I shipped the guy's fucking hand. And I was, thank you, sir. Thank you, thank you, thank you, right? And Cus came over to me, and he walked, and he said, um, you know him? I said, no, no, because he's just a nice guy. He, he congratulated me on my knockout. And he said, um, what do you mean, nice guy? Explain to me. What do you mean? You like him? You think he's good looking or something? What do you mean, nice guy? Tell me what nice guy mean. What do you mean by nice guy? And then I, just, um, I went in the show and he said that because I know I did something wrong. I did something wrong.
0: And what did you do wrong?
1: Um, I talked to somebody. I was kind to somebody. I was nice. And he talked to the guy, and he turned to the guy, and he said, "Don't you ever talk to my fighter again? Do you hear what I'm saying? You do not know my fighter. Don't you ever talk to him again? If you want to ask him a question, you ask me. If you want to know anything about him, you ask me. If I ever hear you, if I ever see you go next to my fighter again, you have a problem." And then I realized i um, not to ever talk to somebody. By um, um, proceeding, asking me to shake my hand, try to shake my hand right now. Let's try to do it. Go through the prison. <laughs> Go do the procedures. Just go to the procedures. No, it's been like this a so while. Go like this. Hey, congratulations. Good fight.
0: Uh-huh. Oh, I see. you you asking me no. Yes. Right.
1: Yeah. Go <laughs> ahead.
0: Um, I think I, was, won't, I won't do it one more time. That was the time. beginning
1: of that whole intimidating thing. I was a little kid and I realized... You don't talk. Uh, don't talk to them. Um, just look at them like you want to kill them. And I know that just sounds so bizarre now because we're all older now, but can you imagine being 14 and everybody that's over 200 pounds, you could be a lawyer. You never had a fight in your life and I'm sizing you up. And that's just how it's always been. I was always in a constant state of war with Cuss, you know what I mean? There's always intimidation, always sizing people up because that's what Cuss was.
0: Because you also didn't trust people.
1: Yeah, Cuss never trusted anybody because, you know, of course... He had a fighter, Floyd Patterson, and Who Floyd, left him. Yeah, but Floyd's a very religious guy, and he trained Floyd since he was a little kid. And um, Floyd was a Catholic, and it was this. Um, in the fifties, there was this lawyer, a very influential lawyer named Roy Cohen, and Roy Cohen had got some. Um, what was it? A cardinal at the particular time, to meet Cuss. And the Cardinal told um, Floyd that Cuss was a bad Catholic. And he left Cuss. And, uh, and Cuss was the kind of guy that went to um, burn candles in church. <laughs> he never went to church again after that. And um, that's just what it was. He always believed somebody was going to betray you. So he said, you're going to betray me too. You got to go away. you find go off your mind. You're going to leave me. And at that time, I didn't know what he was talking about because my whole... My whole identity, my whole life was just to be here with him and I have a family now and I couldn't conceive of believing these people, uh, uh, Cuss. And that was his whole dream, believing that everybody he um, invested the most time um, in him, disappointed him the most.
0: But Cuss also died. How old were you when he died?
1: Well, 19
0: years old. You were 19 years old. Do you feel that he left an unfinished job? Absolutely, But I don't know who am I. I'm just a, I'm just a human being. But I, I don't mean as a fighter. I mean also in a, in a way he was beyond good and evil. He didn't teach you as a mentor might teach you also what it meant to be good. Hey, um, I was good. I was beating everybody.
1: That's good. In my world, in his world, that's our world. Our, our world was winning and beating people and looking spectacular doing it. You know, it wasn't about anything. Our whole life wasn't about making money. It wasn't about being rich. It was about um, being glory. the best. Yes, and being the best. And nobody in the planet could beat us. That was everything. My whole life, he said, best fight in the world, best fight in the world. There's nobody on the planet that could beat me. I could be anybody on the planet in a fair fight. And that's what I always believed. You know, I don't even dream, think about that now. But just to be in that state of mind, I could be anybody. That I mean, I, one day I said this, and um, well, I'm, so high, I'm, so, I'm so happy that I don't think that way anymore. I was having an interview, and I and I start thinking about Cuss, because Cuss is pretty, you know, um, arrogant. And Cuss said, uh, and I said one of Cuss words. I said I was being interviewed, and I said. How many, people in the pl- how many people in this planet? I said, what, around 5 billion people, 6 billion? I said, I could be every one of them in a fair fight. And um, that's what I believed at the time. But it sounds so good to say that. And um, I can't believe I had the audacity to say that. But that's what this. That's but but
0: Cuss put you on a. One thing you said to me that struck me before we spoke tonight you said Cuss put you on a pedestal and then cut you down.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I remember when I was a young kid and I was getting put on the front cover of maybe Ring Magazine at the time, a, a big time magazine it was. Could have been Sports Illustrated, but one of these magazines, I, I got put on the magazine and. Um, there was a bunch of cameras around there, and I, I was feeling myself. I was, well, I was smiling, laughing with the guys like it was a big shot. And then right after that, Cuss said, um, grab the broom and mop and sweep, clean the gym. And uh, whoa. And that's just what I had to do. You know, I just knew my place with him. I just knew my place, you know. Like things I would say with other people, I would never say with him. He would only have to call me one time, and I would be there. It was never like, hey, be there
0: in a minute. But, but fame, which came so strongly afterwards, do you think it messed with your life?
1: Oh, messed with my life? I, of course it did. I was, never, I was never accustomed to handling that type of pressure. But
0: he didn't prepare you for that. Oh, yes, he did.
1: I just didn't listen. <laughs> oh, he prepared me for all that stuff. He taught, Look, I was, I was prepared for all that stuff when I was 16 years old. I was, I was prepared for all that stuff. But
0: you didn't you know, listen? Christmas was like
1: Nostradamus when it came to that stuff. He has experienced it before. And I was prepared, but yes, I didn't want to listen. I thought I was special. I thought everybody else it could happen to, but not me. And that's what most guys think. It's not going to happen to me. I'm, how, could, how could it happen to me? I made more money than him in one fight than he did in his whole 25 years of fighting. How could that happen to me? I must be ordained by God. I must be... Um, Alexander the Great. Yeah, that might be I must be... Um, yeah, I did think that. I, said, I know. I did think that. I think I must be... Um, I must be a descendant of the great warriors of old, all the gods of war, because I'm winning with the most simplest of these. How could these guys even dare fight me? You know, um, but it was really all about cuss, and I forgot that. You know, I had a great teacher. You know, and not necessarily that I was a great fighter. I never think, um, in my in my deep heart, I never think that I, I was a great fighter. And I don't think I was a great fighter. You didn't? No. Really? No, no. But I'm a, incredible student I'm a great great I'm a astronomical student that I could project greatness without being great and that's why I succeeded so much I would quote um books i would quote um stuff from um great warriors um Pericles and all that stuff and people would think that is incredible you know but, um, <laughs> it wasn't it was just all um, b- uh, illusions show yeah and that's what um, and that's what comes with being um, a great entertainer it's all about illusions listen I'm going to be 6,000 people 6 billion people in a fair fight come on
0: And it's no, as, as you said it sounds but, um, good
1: but um, it can be believed but it doesn't necessarily have to be true and I can reject that belief in the minds of others
0: as we slowly close, I still want to see at least one or two more fights. Oh, um, no. November 22nd, 1986. Um, I know we saw that one, forgive me. Um, November 1996, a very famous fight. Clip number seven. That's a and what year is uh, 1996. Okay, November 1996. It's round ten. This is where you. Where this is the first
1: fight or the second fight?
0: First. All right.
1: Say something this guy beat the shit out of me. I was just saying, I was, um, listen, right, I was fighting this guy, and, um, I had just won two other championships right before I fought him, and I had watched this guy, Bobby Stewart, who was just a buffed-up heavyweight, uh, this Irish guy, beat the shit out of Vanda, and Vanda was just lucky enough to stop him on cuts, so... I had won two titles, and I was up in my room smoking um, a bunch of blunts and drinking some champagne. And of course, you know, I had all my little prostitute girlfriends with me as well, right? And so I watched this fight, and I said, listen, oh, this is so magnificent punch right here. But I was saying to myself, "Um, I'm not even going to train for this guy. Fuck him, right? But my friend Zip said, no, Mike, you got to train. I said, come on, man. You think I got to train for this guy? And as you see, this is what happened.
0: What's what's going through your mind at that moment when you when you've lost?
1: I'm saying, oh shit! Um, I'm saying, okay, he got this one. I'll get him back again. So, is 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 boxing for you really about revenge? No, um, it's just that you know I I never um, take my losses personal, you know, and that's very difficult for. Um, Athletes of any, any field to do. I've learned that from Cuss. That's why he's been such a great mentor to me. You know how um, it's just not to be taken personal because it would drive you nuts. And I just knew that um, this is why, um, in all disrespects, and I'm not trying to be um boasted or sure, but this is why I'm successful now after boxing because I didn't take it personal. I'm not trying to even the score. A is still fighting. He's still trying to even the score. I'm not trying to even the score. I'm moving on to other places which are probably dark and um, places I've never been before, but I'm not afraid to go there. I'm not afraid, um, I'm not afraid to um, lose in life. I'm not afraid to do anything. I won't do anything. Matter of fact, I won't do anything. Matter of fact, like my show, there's nothing I would do unless I have um, a possibility of being humiliated. If I can't be humiliated, if I fail, I don't want to do it. Because only by doing that, I will rise to my highest potential with the fact that I might be humiliated. And I don't want that to happen. But when it does happen, then um, I will truly be humiliated. Because when I succeed, I truly succeed. And that's why I'm here with you.
0: Um, gosh, um, I'm going to have you read a couple of passages. Oh, but before-
1: no, that's going to be like being at a spelling bee for me. Okay, <laughs>
0: you know what? Uh, how about, how about I, I read one and you read one? Okay. Okay, um, I, I want to make sure that people understand that I'm reading you. These, okay. w- many of these words will be new to me. Um, Uh, I mean, a question. I truly people. appreciate all you guys coming out here, because man, I appreciate you. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you know, in the spirit of what you just said, you you write in the book, my baseline normal is to myself, and when I don't do that I think I should get rewarded I'm the quintessential addict I'm a piece of shit who thinks that the world revolves around them I have the lowest self-esteem in the world but the biggest ego God could ever create um. have you remained sober since last summer? no way
1: god okay. damn
0: what fun would that be if, I, if
1: you don't you know of course relapse is a part of recovery and if you don't relapse you don't recover right. and of course I, yeah. I relapse you know. um.
0: Does it make sense, um, before we read these, these passages, to, for you to have um, a happy ending?
1: I don't know about that. We're dealing with life on life terms. Um,
0: what does that mean?
1: It's out of my control, truly. You know, um, it's out of my control. I say, well, I'm responsible now. I have to be present for my family and my children. But when... Um, um, when that feeling comes, you know, um, you have no control over it. I might want to die tomorrow, you know, and that's just what it is, and that's how my mind works. Maybe something may happen. I might get into, I might um, get into an argument with my wife. Something might happen. I might want to die tomorrow, and I might want to live, but I might have killed myself already. <laughs> so um, I don't know how that goes, you know. Um, and you want to
0: die because there's been en- enough already?
1: No, maybe I want to die because I want to know what it's like to die. I want to know if it's just dark, like when you have one of those dead sleeps and you, you wake up and you wouldn't know if you were dead or not if you didn't wake up. So um, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I just know right now I want to live and experience life and, and um, I don't know what life has in store for me, but I'm not afraid to find out. I'm not
0: afraid of dying either. You know, um, what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to read just a little bit of that passage because okay. it's a long one. It's in the epilogue. It's extraordinary. It's, it's a passage in, um, all in italics. Do, do you know why it was put in italics, that whole passage? This whole passage. By all means, yeah. what is italics? Um, <laughs> In Indented scripture. Look here, if you you see you see the difference. Be, it, it's highlighted.
1: Why was it that way,
0: Vatso? <laughs> I mean, why was it? Mind uh, so it, it's stream of consciousness. Well, it feels. I mean, I um, it feels like you're talking. You're on a on a long, long rant. Yeah, that's uh, what I do. Right, baby, because when I'm angry with my wife, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just
1: talking, I'm just ranting. Yeah, yeah, me. Hey, I don't want to clean the this. I don't want to do that. I don't want to go to the store and buy this and that. Goddamn. Come cook food now. Uh,
0: yeah. Um... I mean, you know, the, the, I mean, I'll, I'll read a few passages very quickly. I, ha- I hate myself sometimes. I feel like I don't deserve anything. Sometimes I just fantasize about blowing at somebody's brains out so I can go to prison for the rest of my life. Working on this book makes me think that my whole life has been a joke. I'm a dark and jaded motherfucker. I hate living like, a, I told you, I, I hate living like a peasant now. I don't know if I'll survive to the next day. I might ju- just say, fuck it, and jump and leave. Sometimes I can't sleep, and then you say, I'm awake. The only thing I, was, I did was fight. Fuck and bring in the kids. My baseline normal is to destroy myself. I read that already. And then you say... Um, and I still hang in the ghetto. I'm a ghetto rug rat. Sometimes I look over at Farid and say, Who are we, Farid, when we go to a yacht? and uh, Why don't we go on a yacht in Saint-Tropez? Why are we with these broken niggers? Because they broke... They, they broke-ass niggers are our people. They're struggling back and night, day and night. I love those rotten, dirty motherfuckers, even though I can't trust them as far as I can throw them. I can take anything. I think about Nietzsche a lot. I know th- what the overman is. I know I can endure without killing anybody because I'm always close. Some people don't have any decency or respect. When we're out and we see a guy like that, I'm thinking, I wish we could say something. He would say something to my wife. I'd blow his brains out. Those people are out there, but I've got to stop thinking that way. I'm trying to restrain that to be the new guy. But how much of my balls do I have to cut off to be this new guy? Quite a passage.
1: You know, that's just when I need a hug from my wife every now and then. <laughs> I just really need a hug from my wife. That's <laughs> when I'm trying to scare her into giving me a hug or something. I just, I don't know. Sometimes she's just with the kids too damn long, and I just need a hug or a kiss sometimes, and I got to rant and rave, and I'm sorry, baby, I love you.
0: <laughs> oh God. She's here. Your mother-in-law is here. Yeah, yeah. That's One awesome. of your kids is here. Two Italy, yeah. is of my kids Two. One is sleeping. One is here. Now let's um, let's finish with you reading something. Oh God! Okay. It's short. <laughs> here it is. What do you want me to read, to? I want you to read from here to here. That's a lot of shit. It's less than I intended to have you read, so I think uh, it's a good one to end on. I think I read better than you. I can't believe I let you do this. You think you read better than I do? Well, in English I do. I think in English you do read better than I do. Okay. I've always
1: sought comfort for my pigeons, no matter where I live. I always have them, and I've collected special breeds of pigeons. They're called roller pigeons. Sir Anthony Hawkins played Hannibal Lecter. In that great movie, he talked about them. Do you know that a roller pigeon is... You know what a roller pigeon is, Barney? They they climb high and fast and they roll over and fall just as as fast towards the earth. There are are shallow rollers and there are deep rollers. You can breed two deep rollers or the young roller will roll all the way down and hit and die. Okay, next passage, guys. (laughs) All right. It is no surprise that I have an affinity for rollers. It is really, so, it is really something to watch them fly higher than all, all the other birds. They fly higher than all the other bay- birds, way up in the top of the sky, and the, way in the clouds, and they just roll and roll and roll down. And if they're lucky, they pull out in time before they crash and head first into the ground. Rollers who are the offspring of two pairs of deep rollers can do that. They roll so fast that they create a suction, and they can't open their wings. And if they ex- and if they explode on impact, it looks horrific to us. But if but if um, we put ourselves in we put into the heart of that bird, there's nothing like that feeling, plumbering down and rolling. It is a smorgasbord of endurance and endorphins, and a dopamine and adrenaline. Adrenaline. Wow, that was a good word. Okay, and um. <laughs> and a little like snorting Coke and drinking Hennessy while being hooked up in a a morphine drip. Both of my parents were deep rollers. I was bred to climb high and high into the sky and tumble down. I am truly grateful that I found my wings before I hit the ground. Mike Tyson.
0: This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org.